Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's Tech Talks, we are talking to the CEO of Birdie, Max, but before that, Hiya, Jack. Hello, David. How is your week going? It's going very well. I've just received some fantastic news that I am in June going to Austin for a week and a half and then Amsterdam for half a week with oh. work. Well, yeah, I, I assume it might be work given, you, given your colleagues are Austin-based. Uh, they are indeed. Exciting. Yeah, so uh, I'll, be, I'll be stateside in early June. Uh, well, once I've booked the flights, which is quite exciting. Very nice. I'm off to, to Paris. For a week. Oh wow! What are you going there for? That Macron summit or whatever? <laughs> no, no, that's what I call it. I'm not. I'm not there for the Macron summit, whatever summit that mm. is. No, it's the Women in Tech Challenge, part of VivaTech. That's it. Where you're um, well out of your depth on that panel, as per usual. Thanks, mate. I mean that the nicest way possible. I'm you're there with you. literal heroes. Yeah, I like that you just immediately bring it to the fact that I'm out my depth. But there we go. Yeah, I've voted now, so you know, there I've had my say. It might be inept, but there we go. It was good fun. Remember, we, we talked about the uh, the applications, STEM tech. Did. Girl and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway, I was very geeky last night. By the way, mm-hmm. I was uh, I was talk, talking to Alexa, trying desperately to get her to. Oh, actually, I should be careful what I say now. She's probably going to wake up. Uh, She's but listening just, to you anyway, Dave. She's <laughs> listening to you all the time, mate. Yeah, you know, know but, that. She'll interrupt the podcast by talking in the background. No, I was trying to. I was trying to get her to play a book on Audible, and every time I said "Life on Air," <laughs> she started playing a sample of "Life on Track." I was like, "No, Life on Air." Here's a sample of what? "Life on Track." It's like, no, 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 Life on Air. Anyway, it kind of occurred to me that you know. In Star Trek, when they talk to the computer, it's a bloody good thing that they don't have Alexa because, you know, like, shields up. <laughs> did, you, did you mean, or here's, here's a radio station with a sample of some jazz music you might like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether that was too geeky, but... Scotty was all over the tech, though. There's no way that Scotty would have allowed for anything like that. Come on. Let we, Scotty over Alexa any day of the week, as far as I'm concerned. Until we build spaceships that, that are like Star Trekky, Star Warsy, right? Like Trump's trying to do, yeah? Yeah, we need to, be, we need to think through how we open skills, because I can never remember how to open a skill via voice. And you'd be like stood, stood there on the bridge trying to get the... the, the the spaceship to do something be like damn it what's what's the skill called what's the bloody skill called <laughs> anyway. can i just say i saw endgame on the day of its release oh well um, hang on as... we, i know we often do spoilers and, and no way would i do any spoilers Good. no way don't spoil endgame anyone that does is a loser although quite funnily i was mm-hmm. um uh, on friday evening i rang my friend to discuss it and as you know, my voice is incredibly loud and we were discussing it with spoilers and Rosie in the next room heard and um, she hasn't seen it yet. Is she, is she, has she forgiven you? Is she talking to you? Um, we're all right. We're all right. And then I was like, I went to try and justify it and try and say, well, you know, this only happens because and I was like, no, stop, because I'll only give something else away. She's forgiven me, um, which is lucky because I wouldn't have forgiven anybody. So, Yeah. <laughs> 
I have to say, um, I do like the odd comic book film, um, but I'm not quite on the same level as you. However, I am very excited for Joker, having watched the uh, trailers. I love Joaquin Phoenix and his portrayal of the Joker. Hopefully, we'll see the second person win an Oscar for the same character. And Dave, when's the only other time that two people have won an Oscar for the same character? I'll have a think about that whilst the interview's yeah. playing, because I have genuinely think about no it. idea. Uh, yeah. I might come back to that later in the show. I think we should pivot, though, to this week's interview. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, there is no real link here. Um, oh, you didn't well, let me... I was going to try and... Rosie well, would have put me in care about the spoiler, but uh, that might be a bit insensitive. No, no, no. no. I was just going to say, other than, than, than Max is a superhero. That's perfect. He is our Captain America. Yeah, well, or Captain Belgium. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah, 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 Captain Belgium. Yes. Yeah, it's not quite as Hollywood, but I like it. This is, this is Max. He's the CEO of Birdie. Genuinely, I don't, I don't often say this, but one of the most insightful, interesting, and, and honest interviews that I think we've ever had on the show. So I hope you enjoy it. Stick with us. Uh, afterwards, myself and Jack will have some thoughts. Max, you're the CEO and founder of Birdie. Birdie Care, Birdie? Uh, Birdie. Birdie. Yeah. Birdie Care Online, but... Birdie.care. Right. Um, but it's Birdie. Right. Yeah. Cool. Because and I don't like the word care. And we go way beyond care what we do. I'll talk about it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Why don't you like the word care? Because it is, it is, you know, if you had to explain it in layman's terms, I suppose you'd say it's care for the elderly, right? Yeah, but I think a couple of things. Number one, um, caring for the elderly can be sometimes patronising. Right. Um, so one has to be careful in when you use that term. So, of course, there are people who really need some care. But there's a grey zone where some people say, I, I don't really need care, I need more support. And the second reason is the ambition we got is really to help uh, society deal with aging overall. And, and we really want to help people to age confidently and, and more healthy. So it's not about only caring for them, it's also about giving them the guidance to age in the right way. So it could be self-care, uh, but it could be also my mom, who is you know 68 now in two years, to give her the right means to actually take care of her own health. So it's really, the ambition we got is really, you know, aging better and not only caring. So you're CEO of Birdie, mm -hmm. And you've touched on what, what the business is there, but it's also got a bit of a personal story behind it as well, yeah, which is described on your, on your website. But it'd yeah. be interesting just to kind of talk no, about it. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's always a, a bit of a founder story. But um, I think two elements. One, my grandfather, um, he had Parkinson. And when my grandma died, uh, he, we decided as a family to, uh, to place him in a care home. Uh, because he had Parkinson and we felt that leaving him at home, even with some support, was not the right idea. And he declined actually really rapidly. Uh, in a matter of a year, he he passed away. Um, and a couple of things that you know came to my mind. Number one is, geez, we should have we shouldn't have let this happen. We should have kept him at home and put the right setup so that we had the right support. But the moment he got in that care home, he he got depressed. He was really sad. He was he had no taste for life anymore. Uh, and so he passed away. And the second thing is, I realized how much I didn't want to go to that care home. It was really, I mean, unconsciously something I didn't want to do because it was death, right? It was, it was aging uh, as a whole that for me was really scary. And I think society struggles with aging because it's a taboo. And so these two things really, you know, marked me and I said, well, you know, one day I should be working on that. And then over time, so I've been always working in social innovation. I've worked in climate change. I've worked in global health. I mean, I've been always trying to find new models of organization or technology to solve societal issues. 
And that one, because of my personal story, but also because we started reading about it a lot, uh, came across as, well, it's kind of the new climate change. We're mm. facing a societal crisis and we just see the early signs of it, but everybody knows it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, be, be worsening in the few coming years. It's really a looming crisis. And so we start thinking about what could we do to actually solve some of these issues and, and make that journey much better. And what does the platform actually do then? What, what so we, we actually, and can I step back and, and, and explain what are the problems? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, because I think that will clarify what we're doing. Um, we have millions of baby boomers uh, mm-hmm. who are aging and the thing is they actually die later when they fall sick at the same age. So you have millions of dependent old adults who need support. Um, people think that you know they will be staying in care homes and care homes are the solution. They're wrong. Uh, care homes are not the solution. It's too expensive. There's not enough space. And more, more importantly, 90% of the elderly people don't want to go there. They really don't want to go there. Mm. The future is at home. But at home, it's a completely broken market. Um, number one, all the adults are not safe. One out of eight cannot perform vital tasks. Uh, we're talking about a funding gap in the UK, 2.5 billion pounds. So that's about a million older adults who do not have the right support to live at home. So it's it's really people who are today struggling just to bathe or to eat or to stand up in their in their in their house. Yeah, I, I mean, I know from personal experience, my grandma she had a someone coming into her home for as long as she could because she didn't want to go to into, into a care home. But I think it was an hour or two a day, and yeah, and that's it. And then on her, on her own for. 20 odd plus hours exactly and 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 she's already lucky because some mm. don't have any visit um second families are struggling for many reasons we can talk about that you know the structure of the family has changed and therefore you know we have about six million unpaid caregivers in the uk 85 percent of them are saying we really struggle with the role of of unpaid caregiver one out of five is actually has been or is in a stage of depression because of that burden. It's highly burdensome. And I personally experienced it when you know I was talking to a lot of families. Many of the families I talked to, I mean, the lady in front of me was saying, I got my kids, I got my job, and I got my mom I have to take care of. Um, I, I can't I can't deal with this anymore. And and many of them were crying in front of me. And it's really, you know, emotionally intense when you have someone crying saying, I can't deal with the care of my mom anymore. It's just too burdensome. I've got too many things in my life. I think that's really an untold story a little mm. bit. Um, and then the third thing which I realize also is that when you look at care professionals, and the first ones are the caregivers, people coming exactly like you, uh, your story, you know, once in a while to the house of the older adults, one of the one of the four of these home care agencies is at the risk of bankruptcy right now because the margins are so thin. So, you know, that market is completely broken. So that's why I call it the new climate change because we nobody can deal with it. The government can't pay. All the adults are not safe. Families are struggling and professionals are struggling as well. It's interesting that you kind of mentioned on that. I suppose it's kind of taboo to say my parents are a burden, but when I, when I listen to my own parents talk about my grandma when she was reaching the latter stages, they're based up in Newcastle. My uncle and aunt were based down in, in the southeast, and my grandma was based in Grimsby, which is kind of in the north, yeah. but it's kind of the Midlands. And she refused to move from, from Grimsby, and they were pleading with her to, to come to one or two of those locations to make things easier, but yeah. she wouldn't because she wouldn't. She, that yeah. was her home. That was where she was based. And I suppose baby boomers are that first generation that have migrated around a bit, and families aren't all on each other's doorstep, which Absolutely. only kind of exacerbates it. Absolutely. And and the other thing is, you know, you're absolutely right. Urbanization has actually pushed 
all the adults out of cities, whereas usually families live in the city. So the, the, the distance to you know your, your parent is usually much bigger, longer than, than before. Second, people work more, particularly mm. women. And that's good. I mean, that's how society has evolved. But it has an implication, which is it's really much harder to look after an old adult than before. And third, you're absolutely right. The mobility actually has increased dramatically. So people actually move around in the, in the, in the country and hence they live much further away from the parent. So taking care of your mother, of your dad, who is dependent at home is much more difficult than before. So all these problems really you know, triggered some, some thinking on our side to say, how can technology be an enabler? And what we do is we really trying to uh, solve many of these issues. Um, and, and I'll talk about what we do today, and I'll talk about what we will be doing in the future. Today, we have a platform with uh, digital products, with uh, connected devices in the home, with machine learning to support the whole care ecosystem to deliver better preventative uh, uh, tailored care. Uh, and so if you look at, I'll give you an example. If you look at um, how care professionals deal with care today, everything is done on paper. All right. I come to you know, Mrs. Smith's house as a caregiver. I will check in on my timesheet on paper. I will write down what I did uh, with Mrs. Smith. Um, I will also write down how she was doing during the visit, and I'll write down on paper which medication she took. Mm-hmm. At the end of the month, that paper is actually collected, put in a type in a Word document, filed into a family cabinet, and so on and so on. It's very old-fashioned. These people are brilliant because they're really dedicated and committed. But the, the systems they use and the processes are very, very backward. The first thing we're saying is let's bring efficiency in that system and let's coordinate the whole care ecosystem. Let's make sure that they are making savings in terms of time and so on, but also make sure that they can improve the quality of care thanks to digital technology. So we have an app for them. We have a web app for the care agency head office. And instead of using any paper, they're using on your app. Mm. to record medication, to check in, to check out, to record the care log notes, to also record the tasks they've been doing and so on. So we have a lot of sub-products in there. And so we're replacing all the paper. That gives a bit of breathing air to the uh, agencies because they actually can increase the margin slightly. So they're not surviving anymore. Now finally they're back on track because they don't need to pay one person collecting the paper all, all day long. Uh, but the second thing is actually improves the care dramatically. Because if there's a wrong medication given to a care recipient, which happens one out of three cases, you see it right away, not a month late. And so you can really create a real-time dynamic of checking what's going on. Has a care arrived on time? Has a care shown up? And where the medication, the right medication given, things like that. So we try to improve the care that way. That's the first thing. <clears throat> now, what we're saying is that's just you know f- fixing the basics. Family, we're saying, well, to families, we'll help you deal with care much better as well. And so not only do you have an app where you can get reports on the carers because they're using your app, so now you know when a carer showed up, you know who was a carer and what she did and how your mom was doing, and before it was left and posted and you know mm-hmm. it's 60 miles away, you have no clue whether the carer showed up. It's really burdensome. You were completely in the dark. Now you know. But on top of that, also, we come with a range of other technologies, such as connected devices, and we start with motion sensors that we place in the house um, of the older adult, infrared sensors, like alarm sensors. But that gives us a very accurate indication of where the person is and whether there's anything abnormal that should be uh, acted upon. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. You know, It could be a fall, or it could be typically Mrs. Smith has been wandering around um, a lot because she has Alzheimer's, and suddenly we see at 2 o'clock in the morning that she's not in the house anymore. Well, 
In the past, families and care professionals were extremely worried about these kind of situations. And it's very hard to, to see what's going on. And the family member was telling me, you know, I don't sleep at night because mom is a wanderer. And she's been outside of the house at night already a couple of times. And I'm scared. Well, with these kind of things, you can actually flag issues and say, well, it requires action right now. She's outside of the house or she might have fallen in the bathroom. So we're using these sensors to detect any anomaly and to actually flag any emergency. But one thing is flagging and the other thing is triggering the right response. And so we're trying to put a range of services in place for the families to deal with these emergencies as well. So we have a telecare service in place. Mm. So, you know, telecare service can contact via speaker for Mrs. Smith to see whether anything is wrong and whether we should send the ambulance. But we also have a GP over the phone who can actually, uh, via a GP uh, uh, telemedicine service, who can actually provide advice. We have a care manager. So it's not about worrying the family. It's about flagging things and saying to the family, we'll guide you and help you deal with that. So we really want to bring peace of mind to you. The, the third thing, which is fascinating, is that we're fixing the basics here. We're trying to coordinate the whole care ecosystem, but we're generating so much data thanks to the CARES reports and the, the data from the census that we have a very high resolution view on the health and well-being of the old adult in the house at all times. And that is absolutely, you know, um, in, uh, powerful in terms of what you could do in terms of prevention. And we have one of our advisors who said, well, you know, I could easily, we talked about it, lower hospital admission by 30% mm. of these older adults if I could see what happens in the house. And I'll give you the famous example of urinary tract infection, which is not a very sexy example, but it happens very, very often with older yeah. adults. They don't feel that they are dehydrated, so they don't, don't drink enough, and usually a urinary tract infection declares. Um, itself and so what happens very often is you'll see someone being confused or complaining a bit of some pain but you know not very specific where the pain is um, and you will let the, the infection worsen until the moment where you have to bring that person to the hospital and that's the start of the decline it will be highly traumatizing and the person will sharply decline and it does seem to be the case that once people are in hospital it's very difficult to get back out that yeah, system absolutely and then we can talk about the bedlock mm. effect you know yeah, they stay yeah, way yeah. too long in the hospital and we, we see that, you know, there's a very compelling stat. An older adult who, stay, who he is admitted four times within the same year at the hospital, her life expectancy, the last time she gets out of the hospital, is six months. Being admitted to the hospital is like a very easy equation. It's, you know, sharp decline day one. Even if she goes back to, from the hospital to, to her home after a week or so, you can expect that she will never get back to the same level of well health and wealth uh, sorry, uh, health and well-being as before, just because the hospital has been a highly traumatizing experience because she'll be, you know, probably under high medication and because something happened, at, at, you know, an infection or a fall or something she broke. But so avoiding hospital admission is a big, big, big purpose here. And so with the data we got, we're trying to flag issues before any human being and try to address it on time. And that's really an exciting area as well. I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that this is tech for good. Right. But you as a CEO, obviously, are part of this community that has to be aware of its position in terms of responsible leadership and using technology wisely. You say there that you're generating a huge amount of data. One of the themes at South by Southwest this year was that yeah. privacy is dead yeah. because of the connected home, because of because of the amount of biometrics we're collecting. Yeah. And there is 
a nervousness, I suppose, around this, around how this data is being used and is it being used um, responsibly. What do you see your role as as a, as a CEO in trying to work with other organisations, trying to address that problem and what structures or regulation you can see kind of having a positive impact? Absolutely agree with you. And, and I think there is a... Uh, I'm quite optimistic. I see only opportunities here. Um, opportunity number one is, yes, it's tech for good. Uh, elderly care you know, is an area that has been systematically uh, uh, behind in terms of technology adoption. Mm-hmm. And we can so much leverage the power of technology to keep older adults much healthier at home. And that's the purpose, right? You can completely change the aging journey of an older adult of 70 years old or more uh, with two or more long-term conditions if you use the technology in the right way, including with them. So I've been talking about technology today that we have, but the purpose for us is really also to bring them in the journey. That's a massive opportunity. And I will never you know, accept that someone says, because of you know, concerns about privacy or, or data uh, regulation, we should not do health tech at all. Because that's you know, turning away from all these people who need some care, particularly in a context right now where we call, we call it a crisis, where yeah. we do not support these people in the right way. So technology has a role, and we have to accept that and acknowledge that, and I will work on that. Mm. So that's opportunity number one. Let's use it. But you're right. Second point is let's use it wisely. Um, and there's a risk. And, and, and I think the opportunity here is to be within a, let's say, an environment, EU plus UK, where we are actually very mindful of the usage of technology and particularly data privacy. And I'm quite excited about that. I think GDPR is a very first step, but it's much more forward thinking than in the US or in, the, in Asia. And I think that's where I'm quite excited to be in a country where people are thinking about models of data privacy that not only respect the privacy of people and make sure that they are in control of their own data, but second, uh, uh, crowdsources that data for the better good. And we talked about it, but one thing that we are looking at right now, and very similarly to open banking, and very similarly to what the EU Commissioner Vestager said at South by Southwest, which mm. is how can you share data, anonymize data, to make sure that there's no abuse of the data from one single player, uh, we're thinking about creating a foundation where we put all the data, anonymized data that we got, in a repository and say to people who are vetted players, whether academic institutions or other private companies, make use of that data, provided that you respect a certain code of conduct. Because then you really make progress with the research made. I mean, people really will share the knowledge and, and discoveries and, and insights, but at the same time, they adhere to a, a code of conduct, which is we will not abuse uh, the, the, the rights and, and, and of, of these individuals. And I haven't got the architecture set yet, but mm. I know that everybody's working on that right now. And I know that the EU is working on that. And I know that we are well ahead of anyone else in the world on that matter. And so I'm quite excited. So yes, there's a risk, but there's also an opportunity to actually make much more progress if you, if you shape it the right way. Mm. Now, one thing that you touched on before we hit record, I suppose it's tied into that social mission there. You, we touched on the fact that your team have a social contract with society and you try to get them to buy into your vision in, in that way. I just was fascinated by that turn of phrase, kind of a social contract with society and, and your team actually having that. And, and just wanted to kind of ask you a bit more to, to explain that line of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's... A, <laughs> we, uh, we Sometimes we seen a little bit as a teddy bears, right? Or like, come on guys, like wake up. But my view, and, and it's probably very naive, but I'll, I'll stick to it, is that at the moment, 
a couple of things. Number one, at the moment you are privileged, you know, you went to school and you could actually uh, um, study and, you know, some of our developers have done like two masters in computer science. You are privileged. I mean, it, you are part of the 1% of the population who could go to school, actually study and, and choose a job you want. And, you know, London is a cool place to live. And, you know, so life is easy. Um, but the reality is society as a whole um, is actually in need of you know, solidarity and, 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 and mutual support. And some people are really struggling. And so I'm convinced that over the last 20 years, there's been an erosion of the duties of the citizens. And we've come more to the rights of the citizens, but we've forgotten a little bit the duties of the citizens. And there are duties. And, and it comes back to my second point, which is the social contract is to say, well, we will, you know, take these duties and will serve these duties because otherwise you break that social contract and you create so much tension as a society that, you know, it will lead to revolution. And I think the rise of inequality is a very good example that we've seen in the last 20 years, right? It's, it's something we know inequality is rising and we're not dealing, it, not dealing with it because neoliberalism has, you know, taking us you know, by speed and, and we embrace it and capitalism is a great concept, but it's unfair. And so if you don't take these duties as your duties and if you don't serve society one way or another, we will go to a, a breaking point. And that leads me to a last point and then uh, I'll stop talking about that point. But um, I talked a lot to politicians uh, in the UK, in France, in Belgium, and I'm appalled by the lack of latitude that they got mm. in terms of action. They're saying, you know, it's, it's just too complex right now. So a responsible society, that idea of social contract, of duties and so on, forget about it. I mean, right now I'm dealing with, you know, the gilet jaune in France or, you know, Brexit in the UK or trying to form a government in Belgium. And I'm from Belgium. So forget about politicians being a thought leader on that matter. And then I talked to large corporates. And, and I've talked to a couple of CEOs recently who told me the inertia that we have in our companies is so big that we have very little leeway to actually shape the agenda in terms of an environmental you know, friendliness and things like that. All of them told me, as a startup, you can be the responsible organization of the future and set the foundations right today because you will be kind of the example, the beacon, the, the guys who will basically set the standards in terms of responsible organization for the future. So start now. And that means being, you know, citizens in terms of the social impact, the mission, and everyone, everyone who joins Birdie has to adhere to that mission of radically improving the life of one million old adults by 2023. That's, everybody's aligned on that. If you don't adhere to that, if you don't commit to that, you just don't join Birdie. But beyond that, we also believe that we have to adhere to other principles of, you know, how can we calculate our cost of, on, on the environment with the service we, we, we use and things like that? Mm. How do we serve communi the community and the society overall? We committed to 200 hours of volunteering. How do we, you know, support our employees to be well and, and healthy and so on? Things, and there are benchmarks, you know, one is B Corp, the other one is Dot Everyone. There are benchmarks out there to actually see how can we be a organization 2.0 responsible with strong stewardship towards society because that is a role model for the future for any other organization and that's the only way forward because the others have given I know governments are, are preoccupied at the moment but surely they should be showing some interest in supporting you on that journey at the very least. Maybe they, maybe they don't have time to create the environment for you but they should be there kind of yeah, guiding uh, you. No, but I, I mean there's... Of course, they're good willing. I mean, I've, I've never said that you know mm. the agenda is not uh, mean and dark. It's just the the level of leeway they got is very limited. Yeah, right. Okay. And I'm I'm strongly convinced that social entrepreneurship is one of the best mechanisms 
to actually deliver a social impact because mm-hmm. you have the freedom to operate. You can, you know, we have a small team, agile, smart, who, which is obsessed by speed and without limitations and constraints because there's no Brexit or, you know, there's no shareholders, uh, you know, at a general assembly, mm-hmm. you know, whipping me to actually create more shareholder value. So I, I can really focus on what I want, which is social impact with the way we want and with the speed we want. But surely they are very open and supportive. But, you know, we work in, in health tech and I see we deal a lot with the NHS and, and with a few different regulatory bodies. And they are actually very willing to just naturally inertia of, of these very large organizations. And so, yes, it, it slows down a little bit what we want to do in terms of you know, technology and so on. Same for the standards we talked about in terms of responsible organization. No wonder that all these benchmarks or standards are being developed by you know, private or not-for-profits, but not by the government, because they're faster. Mm. Look, Max, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you for opening up a bit about your, your, your background and, and why you started Birdie. And, and the business um, but yeah thank you for, for talking to thank us thank you for inviting me <laughs> kind of it's quite quite interesting listening back to this uh, with the context of uh, all the climate change protests that have been going yeah. on and Extinction Rebellion and he's kind of I, I, that, that, that sentence kind of hit me like a bit of a, a rocket where he says you know this this is the next after, after climate change the, or I think he says this is the new climate change and, and I yep. thought, shit, we haven't even fixed climate change, and we've we've got this <laughs> moving as well. It's like, Christ, we are we are not in good shape. <laughs> Do you know the difference between this and climate change? Go on. Old, old older generations will give a fuck, whereas with climate change, they don't care. <laughs> not oh. that's not everyone. How, you know, I love to generalise. <laughs> I did actually put Ow. in my notes. I did put in my notes on this that there was definitely going to be an opportunity for you to do your usual baby baby boomer bashing. <laughs> even though this is probably in support of their needs. Well, look, I'm not against them. You know, I'm not for them Good. dying or, you know, living in isolation. Obviously not. What I would just like is for them to be a wee bit more woke with issues that pertain to the younger generations. That's not too much to ask. No, I, I genuinely, I thought this was a, was a really quite, in, in part quite moving. He, this, mm. this is so personal to him. Um, mm. And it's something that we can all relate to. I know that you mm. could relate to it from the messages we were exchanging. I, mm. I said, whilst I was interviewing him, that his experiences married very closely to the experiences when my grandmother was passing on and, and my parents' mm. um, anxieties and stresses around that. I, I'd be surprised if anyone of a certain age, you know, certainly kind of mid-20s up, hasn't seen this firsthand yeah either experiencing if they're a bit older with their own parents or if, if they're kind of your age and upwards of, of seeing their own parents go through it with, mm. their grand, with your grandparents. Mm. Mm. I mean, uh, like, like you said, we exchanged our personal stories. I mean, just to hop back to the amazingness of this interview, it was one of the only times that I've literally live tweeted it or live WhatsApped it over the chat to you because I was that engrossed by it. But yeah, we've, we've all had a situation, well, most of us have, unfortunately, where an older member of family has to be put into care. And the, the, the brutal honesty that he says about not wanting to go to the care home because it reminds him of death is the same reason I never made it to my, my nan's care home. I mean, my nan's story is a bit different to his grandfather's in that she was in hospital for a very long time. She went into care for two weeks and then thought, you know what, fuck this, I don't want to be here. And on she passed. And I just think of my granddad at the time and thinking, 
imagine if this, imagine if we were, I mean, it's only my ignorance that wasn't aware of it at the time, but imagine if I could have told him about it, you know, before that, you know, she mightn't have had to go into care and she might have lived a little bit longer. I mean, she was riddled with dementia um, to the point where, it, you know, sadly, it wasn't my nan that passed away. It was, it was someone else. But this is so phenomenally fantastic and life-changing that I am now, I've already sent uh, the website over to my friends and family. Like, this is how powerful this is. And look, I, I think there's that really interesting point that he makes at the beginning where he says, where he, talk, he talks about the fact that we should be careful about the word care because it's yep. patronizing and we should talk about support. Um, and I think obviously where dementia's uh, involved, it's particularly difficult to, to yep. avoid doing this. But we do often dehumanize elderly people. My, my grandma had a series of mini strokes and certainly the, the, the woman that passed away was not the same woman that I remember yeah. as a teenager yeah. or even in my yeah. early 20s. She was always yeah. very sharp and very with it, but her field of reference narrowed, visibly narrowed over, a, over an 18-month period. But 90% of people do not want to go into care homes. They want to remain yeah. in their homes. They are still yeah. people. And mm -hmm. we, I think we, we can sometimes forget that and patronize them. Absolutely. I mean, dementia for me is a bit kind of like, you know, you know, and this is a, this is a bit of a terrible thing, but it's, you know, the, the sunken place and they get out where there is someone in there. They just, they can't communicate to ah, you because yeah. someone else is in front of them. It, that's what it reminds me of. And, you know, I, my whole family lost sight of that kind of idea when we'd go and visit Nan and she wouldn't remember who we are or whatever, but then you'd get five, six seconds where she'd ask you how your girlfriend's doing and, and stuff like that, which yeah. really slammed it home again. And like you say, humanizes them again, because maybe as a generation or, or, or whatever, we do, as you say, dehumanize them ever so slightly. And especially when they start to become unrecognizable, even now, as I'm saying things like they, it makes me feel incredibly guilty. The, the semantics of the word feels like it's so distant, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, this is amazing. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I also, I love the honesty and the, the, the you know, the, the not shying away from the fact that actually modern life has changed. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I talk to Haley about my parents and her parents, and sometimes we can be like, oh, God, what, what are we going to do with them? <laughs> to be perfectly mm. frank, there's no, an element. Absolutely. Like, we're looking at houses in the southeast of England to buy. My sister lives in the southeast of England. My mom and dad live mm. breakneck lifestyle in the northeast of England, five hours away. And it's like, mm. what happens when they start to get, I mean, they're already falling apart to a certain degree. It's like, do, should we feel guilty about that? Uh, we, we, we probably shouldn't. And I, I, love that, I love that Max doesn't shy away from that dynamic. And it's a tough yeah. one, isn't it? It's a really, really difficult one. And he, and he articulates so well about the fact that, you know, the crisis is because of, the home piece, the fact that the yep. state can't pay for these baby boomers who all aren't dying as quickly as the generation before them because of advances in medicine and the stresses mm. that it puts on families. The exciting thing about the, the technology he talks about, the motion centers around the houses, I mean, and I don't want to be insensitively inserting a tenuous link in for the sake of it, but look, think about working from home and working remotely, right? This has now illuminated the idea of caring remotely caring from home if you will and look you you in the south of england and your parents in the north of england 
it's not going to be immediate that you can get up there. But if your phone triggers uh, an alert to say, dad's had a fall or mum's mum's out disturbingly late, you, you would drop everything. Your company, the employees, you would understand that you would drop everything and you'd be going home. Uh, it, that's life. And that's always going to be the most important thing. You know, these are the people that made us who we are and brought us up. A lot of the time when it comes to parents, I do always regard Philip Larkin and in, in his poetry and that, you know, they fuck us up, our parents. They don't mean to, but they do. But at the same time, they made us who we are. And it's incredibly scary to think that we have to look after them one day. It's, you know, it's, it's harrowing to think that, you know, the person, the people that did that for you, you then have to in turn provide to them as you have your own life going on. And the, excitable fact, or the exciting fact that we can begin to, use tech for good now and use something like like birdie to remotely care for these people for the people closest to us it's not the same as being there all the time but you know like you say life's changed in the last 50 years as the even the baby boomers would admit so yeah this i mean i'm ending every point with this is amazing but it's fucking true man <laughs> um but what about this point towards the end uh about social contracts yeah i found this really interesting and, and, and i'll explain why this was particularly kind of revealing we've spoken about the fact that the industry is turning its back on moving fast and breaking things and we've spoken about this homogenous idea that um technology should should have responsible leadership and i'm not going to change that narrative i've wholly bought into that uh since we we spoke to rachel from dot everyone i i think that is yep. imperative and max Max uh, name checks dot everyone and, and, yep. and reinforces that. But I love this idea that politics lacks the latitude. There's too much inertia in enterprise. They can't shape the future. So the role of the startup that is this organization 2.0 that has the speed and the agility and possibly the social awareness, they can, instead of move fast and break things, they can move fast and fix things for the, for the better of society. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I don't want to bring it back to a generational thing, but perhaps this is our generation's gift. You know, the fact that and more and more businesses, it's not, it's not just Birdie that, you know, have this, 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 this idea. A lot of good salt of the earth businesses will have, you know, time dedicated to helping the local community. And um, the place I'm at now, we all have to do, I think it's two to five days a year of, like within our community and things like that, which is a pleasure to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Birdie's, Birdie's initiative is, is, is a bit deeper than that as well, you know, but he's right. Capitalism is great, but it's fucking unfair. Uh, it, it, you know, by nature, it seemed fair, but then so did um, communism and things like mm. that. It's, it, these things are never fair. And it's our responsibility as a, as a, as a race, as a people to, to give back to, to those around us because, the older generations don't do as much. True. Too true. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, sorry, I shouldn't go along with that. You're awful, Jack. Um, anyway, with that, <laughs> I think we should go to our break. And I think uh, all, all that has to be said to, to you know, is, is Max. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely fantastic guest. Birdie's, Birdie's great. Jack's clearly sharing it with friends and family. And we'd yeah. advise anyone else to, to go out and check it out too. Tech Talks are partnering with Alive and Kicking, a charity that set up businesses that manufacture beautiful sports balls across sub-Saharan Africa. 
using profits from ball sales and additional fundraising from events like the Hackney Half Marathon that are able to train sports coaches to deliver vital health education. We're about to hear from Naomi, a coach in Zambia, who's been trained to deliver mental health education to her community. Hello there, this is Coach Naomi from Zambia. I would love to say about Alive and Kicking training, which has helped me to teach my players about like mental health. It has really built my knowledge and they have passed through to my young players in, in the community. I also work with Special Olympics where we deal with children with a disability, mentally and physically. I hope and trust that the Alive and Kicking will continue teaching coaches in various parts of the world, not just in Zambia. Thank you very much, Alive and Kicking. Welcome back to Tech Talks. Jack, I, I've, I've genuinely, I've been trying to think which actor would have won the Oscar for portraying the same character. Yes. And for the life of me, I can't think who it would be, which is killing me. I'll give you a clue. I'll, gi- yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll give you one of the actors, Robert De Niro, the other actor. Oh, uh, so, so Marlon Brando? Yeah. No, yeah, Godfather. Is it the same? Yeah. No. Is it? Do they play the same character? The same character, yeah. So in the first one, it's obviously when he's old. Oh, and the second one is as he gets yeah. to New York. Yes. So hopefully the potential is there for Heath Ledger, albeit posthumously, um, but definitely deservedly. And then maybe Joaquin Phoenix could both win Oscars for Portrayal of the Joker. Two villainous anti-heroes that we just love. Yeah, I wonder if any of our other listeners got that. Anyway, good piece of trivia, mate. Um, um, I'm sure they did. This is coming from Digital Trends, first of all. UK opens its first checkout-free store, but it's not Amazon Go. This is by Trevor Mogg. Um, Sainsbury's has opened its first checkout-free store, and it's the UK's first checkout-free store. It lets shoppers leave without having to wait in a line to pay. Basically, you go round using a QR code, scanning items on your phone, and then as you leave the store, you pay. Um, wonderfully simple. Uh, yep. they don't, they, they've had to modify the stores so they don't stock alcohol and they don't stock cigarettes so that you don't have to worry <laughs> about age verification. Cause that keeps I'm sure, people. I'm sure tech will catch up with that though. Well, I did, I did think it was also quite funny that, uh, uh, well, yeah, facial recognition, it will tell you whether or not you're yeah. 18. It will be quite de- depressing for some people. It'll tell me that I'm certainly <laughs> to be buying certain things. Um, anyway, just need to look at your hair color to deduce that. Cheers, mate. Um, <laughs> What I think is quite funny is that uh, it was like, yeah, we're going to have them in like central London locations where it's people, people who are busy and looking for like breakfast and lunch. It's like, well, hang on a minute. What if, That's what only London. Want? What if they want whiskey and their coffee in the morning? I mean, they, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Anyway, true. Sorry, true. stupid. Um, an, an Irish coffee, if you will. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I did, I did, I loved this. I applaud Sainsbury's for their ambition. That yes. People are getting because it's basically like an honesty bar, right? Dave, I want to, I really want to play devil's advocate here, okay? Uh, because I love this, of course I do. But I, a lot of jobs are people sitting on tills and chipping in that way. Oh, um, sure. We know that some people are going to lose jobs due to technology. Yes. yes. I didn't realize it could hit that close to home, though, because I've never been in a factory or anything like that. So, you know, blue collared work is a as foreign to me as speaking another language. Um, but 
you know, I've worked in a supermarket. I've sat on a till primarily because I wasn't allowed to stop the shelves. So I did a bad job apparently. Thanks Terry from Wivenhoe's Co-op if you're listening. <laughs> um, so I had to stand on the kiosk for four hour shifts and, Actually, I kind of wish that tech did have my job then so I didn't have to work at the co-op. Look, I, I'm not lacking empathy for people's plight. I, mm. I also worked in um, supermarkets. I worked in Safeways in Bedlington. Um, we, did the I, five, we did the five job things on Twitter, if anyone wants to see. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But ideally, there would be better jobs created by tech that these people would be helped into. I know that's incredibly Correct. idealistic of me. No, but, um, unfortunately, it is going to happen, right? If we're teaching kids to code, we can we can reskill adults. You know, this is the thing. The minute that education and our government catches up with tech, we will be fine, and people can reskill and diversify, and you know, use some interdisciplinary skills that they perhaps didn't know that they possessed. And you know, there is opportunity here. I just I couldn't help myself but play devil's advocate for a minute there. Fair enough. Well, look. Um, I, I applaud Sainsbury's. I hope that people are honest. Um, part of me worries that people won't be, but I'm, I'm going to be positive and say they will. And this is going to be mm. great. And it's going to become the norm. And people are going to be decent and own up to what they have scanned and what they haven't scanned. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that, that's, that's good and well. That, but Sainsbury's, I'm sure they overcharge us for some stuff anyway. So if you're going to still <laughs> do it every now and then, you know, cheekily. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Right. Second news, art- no, news item, we're going to play mm. you a two minute, 30 second mini, mini interview with Taz Gault from State Zero Labs. Had a very quick catch up with her at AI and Big Data and Blockchain, as she points out, Expo at Olympia last week. Have a quick listen and uh, we'll talk to you in a second. Big up, Taz. Uh, hi, Taz. Hello. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Day two of... I need to get this right because there's about five different names for this expo. But AI and big data expo probably is the best cover of it, right? I think so, although obviously we are under the blockchain. Uh... Well, this is it. Because like, there's IoT as well that doesn't really get covered by big data. And obviously there are a hell of a lot of blockchain businesses. At least it draws lots of crowds. So why are you guys here? So we are actually recruiting for State 2, which is our second cohort of startups for State Zero Labs. What are you looking for? I mean, it's kind of obvious to say startups. We are looking for startups that are utilising blockchain, but for business. Right. So we don't touch anything to do with cryptocurrency. It's all around startups that are actually solving a genuine business problem and that they lead with the problem they're solving rather than the technology itself. But we are sector agnostic. Yep. All of the startups are relatively early stage. So we take yeah, I was going to say, kind of like, is, it, is it ideas or is it a little bit more than that? Slightly more than that, because you need to have a team yep. and you need to have somebody that is able to use Python. But other than that, that you could actually use the accelerator to build your MVP. But we do then go up to some startups that have already got a couple of clients. So it's a bit of a range, but still early stage. And then I think on top of all of that, the one thing we're looking for are startups that are trying to help bridge the gap between humanity and tech. And what we mean by that are startups that actually care about people and they put people first, no matter what the solution is that they're trying to solve which could be anything from music, which we saw in our first cohort, through to sustainable construction. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, looking at State 1, the cohort that have just graduated from the Accelerator, what would be a good example so that people can go, ah, that's what you mean? So let's take the music um, example. Yeah. So uh, Johnny and Angus, Remixology, 
what they're doing is they're trying to create parity for music stakeholders. So actually what you can do is track the re uh, creating a remix from start to finish and make sure all the right people get paid for that. So that's an obvious use case for blockchain. But then on another totally different uh, aspect to uh, sustainable construction, that's eHab. And so what Josh is doing is building a platform that enables you to track the entire life cycle of a built asset, working with houses in particular. But what they are also trying to do on top of that is that we can't keep living how we are right now and keep building the houses we are. It needs to be sustainable. And so they have that, dri that that's part of their driven, uh, what's dri driving them as well. Cool. Well, look, I hope you get plenty of footfall today. As do we. And uh, it's good to catch up with you. You too. Right, Jack. I know that they got plenty of footfall. I know they got plenty of interest in state too. I know that they are still looking for some people who've got blockchain solutions uh, mm. to offer to the world. I, I've had a little bit of a think. I, I have one blockchain solution that I think would be good. Uh, do you have any? Um. Not right now, but I, I bet I can think of one on my toes. I bet I can think of one on my toes. Right, okay. I gave this some, some thought, okay? What frustrates the hell out of me is that right now I am tied to Android. And in the past, I've complained about being tied to iTunes. And I have two digital libraries of films and music across those two systems. And determined on basically whichever operating system my current phone is i can only access half of my digital assets or my digital library right blockchain mm. would actually be a really good solution surely and maybe maybe state zero listen to this and be like don't be a twerp but if i if i buy the rights to watch a film I would love there to be a blockchain solution that said that I had that digital right to watch it come whatever platform it is that I'm trying to play it over. I think that blockchain would be able to provide people a tag that gave them access to their digital assets, music, photos, uh, films, on all platforms, regardless of them trying to tie us into their restrictive ecosystems. Fine, but Dave, you clearly don't listen to Ryder because Apple are doing something very similar or someone like them is doing something very similar whereby you're going to be able to, it's not quite the same, but you'll be able to play games on any device across all of them. That's not the same as and music. Yeah, I know, but you're, you're either stealing Ryder's idea. I'm really not. Or, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, no, totally. I, I, I totally <laughs> agree. I, no, I, I thoroughly agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, I buy something on Prime I can only fucking watch it via my Xbox, which has got the Prime app. Yeah, sure, surely, surely if there's a digital ledger, ledger, sorry. Uh, ledger. <laughs> ledger, yeah. Ledger. Uh, that should give me rights to a digital library of my assets that I should be able to access on any platform. Stuff it. Yeah. I want, I want open platforms that allow me access to, to stuff that I've bought. Like, why, why should I be restricted if I buy something on Google Play? Um, to then having to use Google Play, and if it doesn't work on an iPhone, then I'm stuffed. Or why should I buy something in iTunes and not be able to play it on my Chromecast? That's not fair. I've bought that film. Uh, the tech should be kind of almost like utility. I I don't know. Well, I don't know whether that's overly well thought. Yeah, out, all right, you know all I mean? right. You, yeah, you've just explained it twice, and I've thought of a really good idea amidst all of that. <laughs> okay, okay, go on. What you got? Right, now... Obviously, this is very fresh. I haven't thought about that as you have, but right. So some kind of rent paying, fluid living kind of thing. So rather than being tied into contracts, long-term contracts amongst one landlord or whatever, you have a landlord at one end of the chain or wherever, 
And then you can quite literally just rent a place for one month to two years, however long you want. You pay just straight up via the chain solution. And then uh, you can dive out and dive into another property if you're staying somewhere or going on holiday. And, you know, rather than there being bureaucratic nightmare of paperwork every time you want to rent a place it becomes seamlessly easy via blockchain to just pick up and go is your silence brilliant jack or are you thinking of how to destroy me immediately no no i actually genuine i'm trying to get my head around kind of some of the practicalities of it because it's kind of like somewhere in between the current rental market and and uh, airbnb mm-hmm I don't know whether it works. I mean, it does sound Can't you like just might be blockchain it up so that you can just... <laughs> You're doing what, what, what Katie mm-hmm. hates. I hear something just blockchain. No, yeah, just blockchain. Blo- I know. Blockchain, I know blockchain, blockchain rentals. No, fuck off. You told me to come up with my own solution. I thought of it amidst hearing your boring solution that anyone could think of and tried my hardest. Sorry. Oh, God. There's no pleasing you. Oh, goes, you go you go on three panels and you're a fucking blockchain expert all of a sudden no i'm not i i was i was on an ai panel i know nothing about blockchain yeah true yeah. so someone tried to get, get me to explain blockchain to them the other day and i was like well it's a digital Ooh. ledger i said it's a digital ledger uh, and they said well what does that mean i said well you know it helps with provenance i've watched i've watched so many three-minute YouTube videos on blockchain, and either I can't remember exactly what it is, or I'm just too thick to grasp it. But you know, uh, I'm glad for people like Katie and Taz to help thickos like us. Exactly. <laughs> right. Blockchain it up. Throw blockchain at every solution. Don't do that. Have a proper idea. Go talk to State Zero. Become part of State Two. I think that's a better idea. I don't, right? I don't think we'll be getting on State Two. I don't think. <laughs> Watch one of these ideas appear. It might be worth billions. We'll just be crying into our Weetabix. Yeah. Oh, God. Imagine Imagine if this whole time people are listening to all these crazy, zany ideas we come up with and they're just going to profit off the back of it. That can be our blockchain solution. If you, come, if you actually put one of our ideas into motion, then we expect you to pay us via the blockchain waves um, for all of our digital media via the digital ledger. Unfortunately, I don't think the law would be on our side there, Jack. But there we go. Um, right, I better let you go. It's um, big night in Champions League football. The birds are singing in the background. <laughs> it's May Day. You're going to enjoy the evening. Spurs lost last night as well. Oh yeah, don't don't blow. Poor rider. 